0: Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 28. Psalm 28. We are working our way through a section of the Psalms this summer. So we won't do all of them. We started this summer in Psalm 26, and we'll just keep going consecutively. And this morning we find ourselves in Psalm 28. So, hear the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. Who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts? Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, have you ever needed something really important from someone else? Maybe it was a work thing, maybe it was a personal favor. It's just you needed something really badly. And so you send that person an email asking for their help. Maybe it starts off really warm and polite. Dear so-and-so, it's So nice to see you the other day. Hope you're doing well. Um, Hey, I could really use your help with something. So when you get a minute, could could you get back to me? Send. You wait. You wait. You wait as long as you can, but you still haven't heard anything back. So you email them again. Now this time it's a little less flowery and more to the point. Hey, I really need your help. Please get back to me as soon as you can. Still nothing. You're feeling a little bit more urgent, so now you say no more emails, now you text. Hey, not sure if you saw my email. Maybe throw in some all caps for good measure. Capital P-L-E-A-S-E, please get back to me, A-S-A-P. And then here's where it gets really hard is they've turned off their read notifications. So you can see it says delivered, but you don't know if they've read it. So you're wondering, Have they checked their email? Maybe these are people that don't actually check email. They have an email address, but we all know that there are some of you, right, who have email but don't check it. And then we know that there's people who have text messages, but, oh, I didn't have my phone with me. So you're wondering, am I even getting through to these people? So by now, you're getting desperate. So you're like, I'm going to actually call them. But you get the voicemail. And your voicemail is right to the point. Listen, I'm in a jam and I need your help right now. I tried emailing you. I tried texting you. I don't even know if you're getting my messages. And I don't know if you're going to get this voicemail, but I really need your help. So please let me know you got this and whether or not you can help me. I'm getting desperate. When we're in a situation like that where we really need help. The silence on the other end of the conversation can be unnerving. Can't it? You're longing to hear from them, to know that they got your message. Just give me some indication. And as unnerving as that can be, isn't it even worse when the person on the other end of the conversation is God? When we pray and we ask him for help, but hear nothing. So we get progressively less flowery in our prayers and more direct And more desperate our prayers start to get more real and more urgent we need God to help but we're not even sure he's hearing us ever been there if so you're in really good company because that's where David finds himself in Psalm 28 desperate for God's help but not even sure God's hearing him at least that's where he starts The psalm starts with David crying out in desperate prayer, but it ends with him singing in joyful praise. Why? Because David has found God to be the God who hears and the God who helps. So let's follow David on this journey this morning so that we can find God to be the same. So if you want to see the movement of this psalm, here's kind of four headers that will see the movement of the psalm. Number one, in verses 1 and 2, we'll see David ask, hear me and help me. Hear me and help me. In verses 3 to 5, he prays, give justice. Give justice. Then in verses 6 and 7, we see him praising God because he heard me and he helped me. And then at the end, in verses 8 and 9, we'll see that he shifts to hear us. And help us. So let's look first at David's desperate prayer. Verse 1. He says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. So when we look at these verses, I want to look at three things. I want to look at who, what, and how. First, who. Who does David pray to here in this psalm? Well, he tells us right off the bat, To you, O Lord, all caps, which is the name of God, Yahweh. To you, O Yahweh. He's praying to Yahweh, the creator God. The God who rescued his people out of slavery. The God who makes those people that he rescued his people by making a covenant with them. He gives them this name as a covenant name saying, that's my name to you. So David is not praying here. This is really important that we notice who he's not praying to. He's not praying to a higher power. He's not praying to a vague concept or abstract notion of a God out there somewhere. That he has no idea what he's like. He's praying to the God he knows and who knows him. The God he's in a covenant relationship with. Which is why in the second line he can call this God my rock. And we really need to understand this this morning. Because you can't pray to God like we see here if you don't know him. If you aren't in a covenant relationship with him where he calls you his and you can rightly call him mine. This is the number one secret to prayer. You can buy all the books you want to buy. You can listen to all the talks you want. But can I tell you the number one secret to prayer? It's knowing the one to whom you pray. It starts and stops there. Because it doesn't matter how you pray, what methodology, or what frequency, or anything else you do with prayer, if you don't have a relationship with the one you're praying to. It'd be similar to telling someone to work on communication in their marriage, and you give them all these tips and pointers and exercises of how they can be better communicators in marriage, but you have them do it all while talking to a stranger instead of their spouse. Because it's not mainly in marriage about principles and practices. It's about relationship. It's about knowing the one you call my wife, my husband. And here David calls God my rock. So we talked about why he calls him my, but why rock? Of all the things David could call God here, why does he go with rock? Well, What does a rock represent? It represents permanence. That no matter what happens, that rock's not going anywhere. It represents strength and security. If you take refuge in a fortress made out of rock, you're going to be safe from whatever attacks come your way. If you're standing on a rock, you know that thing's not going to fall apart underneath you. The support it gives you is sure and steady. And all of that is who God is to David. He's his permanent, unshakable, solid, strong security. God is his rock. And so that's who David cries out to. But now what does he pray for? Two main things. He says, hear me and help me. Do you see that there? Verse one, don't be deaf to me, Verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. David wants God to hear him. He wants to know that those prayers are getting through, that he's getting the texts, the emails, and the messages, that God is actually receiving them and hearing what he needs. He's wanting to know that he has God's attention. And second, he wants God to help him. Verse 2, hear me when I cry to you for help. In other words, don't just hear me, help me. Do something, God. I need you to act. And how does he pray? He prays urgently, desperately. He calls. He cries for help. He pleads for mercy. You can hear his urgency when he says, God, if you be silent to me, I'll become like those who go down to the pit. In other words, God, if you don't hear me and answer me, if you don't do something, my life is over. I am done. God, do you know what's riding on this? I, if you don't show up, I need you to do something, God. This probably isn't the first time he's prayed for whatever he's praying. Maybe this is even, last week we ended in chapter 27 with him saying, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. So maybe this is as he's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And just like the longer it takes for us to hear back from someone, the more direct and desperate our communication gets. Phone calls become terse and the texts become brief and to the point. Well, so when David has been waiting and waiting for God to answer, his prayers have gotten more urgent. And notice that he asks God to hear his pleas for mercy. Notice that S at the end. Plural, meaning I've made more than one plea. God, hear them. And then at the end of verse two, notice his, notice his physical posture. He lifts up his hands toward God's most holy sanctuary. Now, lifting up of hands in the Bible is a normal posture of prayer. Like if we see somebody do it, like you might you might have come from a background or tradition and think well, that's kind of weird or charismatic or I don't know what kind of guy. What kind of prayer circles David was a part of. But that's just how they prayed in the Bible. It was meant to help your body reflect the posture of your heart. It was, you would hold out open hands, eager to receive what God was giving you in grace. And here, there's a a likelihood that because of this imagery he's using of those who fall into the pit, it might even be that he's holding out his open hands as a picture of someone grasping or reaching for rescue. If you imagine someone on the precipice of waiting to fall into something, reaching out, that's, that's what's going on in David's heart. He's like, God, I'm falling into the pit if you don't do something. And so he's reaching out for the grace of God. And whatever the picture, his hands are lifted, it says, toward the most holy sanctuary or the innermost sanctuary. This is the place where God's presence dwells. So David's body is matching the direction of his heart. His prayer is aimed at the presence of God, sitting between the cherubim on the mercy seat, because he knows that his hope is found only in God. So his prayer is not speaking to the wind, hoping that it goes somewhere and some power out there will hear him. His prayer is targeted, saying, God, I am praying to you, Yahweh, my God and my rock, because you're the only place I have hope. So in these first couple verses... Right as he's getting his prayer start, let me recap. What do you see? We see David pray boldly and urgently to God, his rock, asking him to hear him and help him. Okay, so that's setting the tone for what's going on here. Then as we move down into verses 3 to 5, we get a picture of, okay, but what kind of help is David asking for specifically here? What is it that he wants God to do? And what we see is that what he's asking for here is for God to give justice, to do what is right and just, to prevent injustice and to make things the way they should be. And to see this cry for justice, I want to look at these three verses. I'm going to give you three words. I think capture each of the verses. The three words are distinguish, deserve, and disregard. Okay, so first in verse 3, David wants God's justice to distinguish between him and the wicked. Look at verse 3. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. God saying, or David's saying, God, distinguish between us. He's afraid of being treated like the wicked. He doesn't want to be lumped in with them and receive the same treatment they will. Because David's not one of these evildoers here. Now that doesn't mean he's perfect. It just means that he's trusting in God. We see that in verse 7. He's living in right relationship with them. He's looking to God for help and protection and mercy. He belongs to God. And because of that, he does not want to meet the same judgment that the wicked will meet. Saying, God, no, no, no. Please distinguish between them and me. See that I'm different. See that I'm not like them in that way. It literally says he doesn't want to be dragged off with the wicked. That's a very vivid picture, isn't it? And what this is likely referring to is actually a practice in the Old Testament where someone who's accused of a crime would go to the holy place and they take hold of the horns of the altar as a way of kind of seeking asylum. It was kind of a safe place. And what would happen is if they were found to be righteous, they'd be spared. If they were guilty, they'd be drugged off and killed. Let me give you one example of this in 1 Kings. There, Adonijah has set himself up as king. David is nearing the end of his life. And so Adonijah says basically, I'm going to be the next in line. I'm setting up my kingdom. But then the news comes that, oh, David is actually appointed solomon to be the new king so now adonijah knows that he's going to be seen and condemned as a traitor and a rebel who's trying to undermine the real king so listen as we pick up the story there in first 1 kings 1 50 and adonijah feared solomon so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar then it was told solomon behold adonijah fears king solomon For behold, he has laid horns at the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. So this guy, he rebelled against the real king and so he runs to the altar and he says, don't drag me off. I'm not wicked. Search me, see. What is David doing here in verse three? He's so to speak, clinging to the altar saying, God, judge me. See that I trust you. See that I'm innocent, spare me. Don't drag me off the way you would one of the wicked workers of evil. In other words, he doesn't want to be treated the way the wicked are. And notice who these wicked workers of evil are. When you hear that phrase, wicked workers of evil, I wonder what dark and horrific sins pop into your mind. Workers of evil. Wicked. Well, how are they described here? They are those who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. My guess is most of us, that's not how we filled in the blank. The wicked, it says, are those who are friendly to people, speaking kindly, wishing them well, all while harboring evil in their hearts, plotting against them, jealous of them, angry with them critical of them eager to see them fail hating them despising them scorning them all with a smile on their face and silky smooth words coming out of their mouth and that disconnect between what's in their heart and what they show to other people David says that's wicked it's deceitful it lacks integrity from a couple weeks ago they bless with their mouths and curse with their hearts and God hates that This is another powerful reminder to us, friends, that God is concerned not only for our outward actions, but what's going on in our hearts. You can be the sweetest person on the outside and inside be full of evil. God's not just after our behavior. He wants our hearts. He wants to change us inside and out. But for those who continue to live this mismatched life, where their words don't line up with what's in their hearts, it says they will be dragged off to judgment. And David is asking God in verse 3 to distinguish between him and those wicked. Don't treat me the way the wicked deserve. And that takes us to the next word in verse 4. Deserve. Because while David doesn't want to be treated like the wicked, he does want the wicked to get what they deserve. Look at verse 4. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. And what David is appealing to here is a sense of justice. He assumes in making this request that there is a right ordering of the universe. That there is an absolute sense of right and wrong and that actions should be judged accordingly. Right should be rewarded And wrong should be punished. And the one administering this justice is God, the righteous judge. That's the basis of David's prayer in verse 4. His prayer makes no sense if he doesn't believe that's true. Look, three times he uses the phrase, according to. Give them according to their work. According to the evil of their deeds. According to the work of their hands. In other words, he's saying there's a correspondence between what they've done and how David wants God to treat them. He doesn't just wish ill on them. He's not just out for them to have something bad. He says, give them according to what they've done. Their treatment should correspond to what they get. Render them their due reward. And what's interesting is that we find this principle of getting your due reward all over the Bible. The basis of God's judgment is, is always according to works. When he judges people, he always gives them what they deserve for what they've done. Let me give you a few examples. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 16, when he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Paul says the same in Romans 2. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And in Revelation 20, we read this. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, this might seem really troubling at first if you've been around church for a while. There might be something in your heart saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We are saved by faith alone, not by works. What are you talking about this work stuff? That's true. We are saved by faith alone, not by works. But as James says, faith apart from works is dead. In other words, when you have real faith, it will produce works. And if your faith doesn't produce works, it's not real faith. Because when Jesus saves you, when you trust in him and he transforms you, you are now created in Christ Jesus for good works. Works necessarily follow from faith. That's the change they produce. They are the fruit and evidence that God has done a work in you. When God works in you, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So why does David pray what he does in verse four? So if there's this link between faith and works and between works being the basis of judgment why does David pray what he does in verse 4 I think he prays what he does in verse 4 because like us and like him we are all created with a desire for justice I may not know anything about you you may have different religious beliefs in this room you may be here just confused about what Christianity is I don't believe any of that but I know this that we all have a sense of justice. We all believe that right should be rewarded and wrong should be punished. Now, we may disagree on what is right and what is wrong, but we all have a sense of justice. And I know this, that when the world seems not to match up with that, when it seems as though injustice is prevailing and wrong goes unpunished and good isn't rewarded, for any of us, that can be disorienting. It can feel like the world is off its axis when you see all this bad stuff seeming to win and all this good stuff seeming to face setback after setback after setback. It it does something internally and we say, what is going on? David feels that. So David is crying out to the judge of all the earth to bring his perfect justice, to make things right in the world, to make things the way they should be. He says, help those who trust in you, God, and give evildoers what they deserve. And still today, this is the prayer of God's people. We pray that the righteous would not be treated as the wicked. But we do pray that the wicked will be given what they deserve according to their works. In other words, we pray for justice. Whether it's in the Ukraine, whether it's in Uvalde, or thousands of smaller evils that take place every day. And our hope is that God will hear this prayer for justice and give it. Jesus says in Luke 18, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. In other words, friends, God will right every wrong. He will reward all good. And he will punish all evil. And though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And he will give justice. Which brings us to the third word in verse 5. Disregard. Look at verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Here is David's reminder of what's true. Notice that he's not asking for anything here. It's a statement. Because this is true, God will do this. And what he says here is that God will give justice. He will tear down the evildoers and not build them up. But did you notice why? Because they don't regard the work of the Lord or the work of his hands. In other words, they disregard who God is and what he's done, disregard. They they don't think much about it. It doesn't carry much weight in their life. Like if you disregard something, it doesn't really have much bearing on your life. They ignore his works of love and mercy toward them. They forget his works of grace and compassion. They disregard his works of creation, redemption, and provision. And because... Catch this, because they disregard the works of his hands, they'll get what they deserve for the work of their hands. Do you see how David is playing off this? He mentions your work, work of your hands, their work, work of their hands. Now this should be unsettling. I I hope there's a little discomfort when we realize we would all be counted among the evildoers here. Because as we said earlier, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have evil in our hearts and all of us do evil with our hands. But the good news is that this prayer is pointing us to the answer we have in Jesus. Think think about this with me here. What is David's concern in verses 3 to 5? He says, don't treat me like the wicked but give them what their works deserve because they disregard you in your works. Don't treat me like the wicked, but give them what they deserve. Here's the good news of the gospel, friends. Jesus was treated like the wicked. Though he was innocent and sinless, he was treated the way the wicked deserve. Though he had done nothing wrong, he was dragged off like a worker of evil. He was given according to our work, according to the evil of our deeds, and given what we deserve. And as Jesus took what we deserve, his cry on the cross was not, Father, give them what they deserve, but Father, forgive them for what they've done. But the good news is even better. Because in another very real sense, God heard this prayer from the lips of Jesus because he did distinguish him from the wicked. How? By raising him from the dead, saying, you don't belong in that judgment. That's not fitting. You are vindicated, my son. He raised him from the dead. And now, after God gave Jesus what we deserve for the work of our hands, now he gives us what Jesus deserves for the work of his hands. Eternal life. Deep and lasting joy, real peace, unshakable, steadfast love. And how can all of that be ours? By regarding the works of the Lord. When the people asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Trust him. Trust him. Trust in his work on the cross that paid for all your works of evil. Look to him for mercy and help, for grace and hope, and know that when you trust in him, he will change you so that your life produces good works. Then we come down to verses six and seven. And here something has shifted. Perhaps it was the confidence of remembering the The promise of God's justice in verse 5, maybe. Maybe it was something else, we don't know. But whatever it was, David's heart is no longer full of desperate prayer. Now he's filled with joyful praise. Look at verse 6. He says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield, in him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. David blesses and praises the Lord. Why? Because he's done the very things he asked him to do up in verses 1 and 2. He has heard this voice. David has cried out for God to hear him, and now he worships him saying, You did! You heard me! God wasn't deaf. He didn't ignore him, and he didn't go silent. Instead, he heard and he answered. So now David calls Yahweh his strength and his shield. David knows that he himself is weak and vulnerable, but God is his strength and his shield. David doesn't need to find strength in himself or be his own protector. He has the Lord. He can run to him for refuge and rescue. And Christian, so can you. You don't need to scrounge up strength in yourself. If you feel weak and overwhelmed, unable to hold up against all that you're facing, know this, you don't need to dig down deeper. You don't need to find strength in yourself to keep going. You don't need to just suck it up and soldier on. You don't need to always be worried and on guard for what may be coming your way. Because the Lord is your strength and the Lord is your shield. He will be your refuge and your strength, your very present help in trouble. So run to him. Look to him. Call out to him. Cry to him. And guess what you'll find when you cast yourself on him in faith? When you're in that spot and you just throw, you say, God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. I've given you everything of me. Guess what you'll find? You'll find what David finds in verse 7. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. God heard David, and he helped him. When he felt desperate, like he was on the edge of falling apart, God heard his pleas of mercy and cries for help. And do you know what that does in a person's heart? When you see God show up in that way, when you have nothing else but God alone and you put all your hope on him and he hears you and helps you, do you know what that does in a person's heart? I'll tell you what it does. My heart exalts and with my song, I give thanks to him. Knowing that God hears you, Christian. Knowing that he hears you, the God of the universe hears your cries. Knowing that he hears you and then watching him help you when you need it, oh, it thrills our souls. It floods them with joy and gratitude. Don't you want that. Don't you want to say with David, "My heart exults. Do you know why David got to experience that kind of joy and exaltation? Because he prayed. It's that simple. In his turmoil, And fear and need, he didn't just stew on it. He didn't just process it and think about it and worry and wonder. He didn't try to figure out a solution. Say, well, maybe if I if I run to them, oh who can help me? Maybe if I He doesn't try to escape his problems, whether mentally or geographically. Instead he ran to his rock and he called out for mercy. He cried out to be heard and to be helped, and he was. And so now he worships the God who heard him and helped him. And then the psalm ends with a slight shift. This has been a very personal prayer so far. If you look, skim your eyes over the first seven verses, there's lots of I and me and my. But in verses 8 and 9, David shifts his focus from just himself to all God's people. Look at verse 8. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. David rejoices that this good news that God hears and helps is bigger than just him. So first he celebrates that God is not just his strength, and his shield, he's also the strength of his people and the saving refuge of his anointed. And then he ends with one final prayer. One final way for God to hear and help his people. Verse 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. David, David asked God to save and bless his people. Rescue them. Deliver them from evil. And then I love how he ends here. What a way to end your prayer. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is our God, friends. He is our shepherd. We know our shepherd will defend us. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Because he's our shepherd, we won't lack anything. He'll protect us. And provide for us. And when we're in trouble, he'll hear us and come help us. And when we are too weak or too hurt to keep going, he'll carry us. Isaiah 40 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. No other God is like this. God wants you to know that, that. There is no other refuge you can run to that will be like this. In fact, he tells us this in Isaiah 46. He paints this contrasting picture. He says, look to the false gods that you have. Look to the things you hope in. These wannabe, these cheap imitations. And let me show you why they're nothing like me. He says, Bel bows down. Bel and Nebo were false gods. He says, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are all on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden but themselves go into captivity. In other words, saying you got all these little gods that you have to lug around. Like you have to bear the burden of trusting in these false hopes. They can't save you. In fact you have to lug them around. Then he says listen to me O house of Jacob all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb even to your old age I am he and to gray hairs I will carry you i have made and i will bear i will carry and i will save they can't carry you i will carry you you have to carry them i'll be the one who bears you friends this is our god our shepherd who hears us who helps us and who will carry us forever